This morning, we are in the third week of our series called Beyond Ordinary. And what we're doing in this series is taking a look at just people in the Bible, their lives, and seeing although they were rather just ordinary people, that God used them to accomplish extraordinary things. And this series really has its, I would say, its motivation and, and roots in the vision that we have here at Faith Community, which is to help you move from where you're at today to where God wants you to be. Because we believe that ultimately God has a plan for every single person's life. And that plan for your life is, was in motion even before you were born. So it, it is not relegated, or, or excuse me, it's not uh, um, hindered by your past or by what kind of job you have or where you came from or socioeconomic status, any of that, that God created you with a plan in mind and he resourced you to accomplish that plan and that purpose. We want to help you discover that. We believe that above even a specific Thing that you're supposed to do, that God wants you to, to do four things. Number one, he wants you to know him, right? Under, know who he is, salvation. Number two, he wants you to find freedom in every area of your life, everything that you struggle with. Number three is he wants you to discover your purpose, the reason that you exist, the reason that he created you. And I'm here to tell you that God's plan for your life is not boring. It's not uh, generic. It is specific and unique to you. It is bigger than anything you thought possible. It is not just, I get up, I go to work, I do my thing, I come to church, I sing some songs, I hear a message, a good message if you come here. Um, (laughs) Just joking. You know, I'll put a little on the offering plate, sir, and then I go home and I do it all over again. Those are aspects of it, but God's plan for your life is bigger because we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves when we're part of his family and his community, and no one is an accident. So God wants you to discover that purpose. And then number four, wants you to find fulfillment. And fulfillment in life is found not in receiving, but in giving. When you use those gifts and those talents and you're helping others, there is so much fulfillment in that, right? Because we serve a God who is a giver and we're never more like him than when we give, not just financially, but of our lives. That's God's plan for your life. And we're looking at individuals throughout scripture who just made an ordinary decision, right? They were ordinary people. It wasn't something so supernatural about them, but they made a decision. And we looked at Abraham and Nehemiah and Abraham, we saw how God asked him to move, move from where he was at, physically move his family and to go to an undisclosed location. Abraham, I want you to move. Where? I'll tell you. Just not right now. I want you to go. And Abraham made the decision, I'm, I'm going to trust God and I'm going to go. And he went. And not only did God bring him to this destination, but God changed him in the process and God changed his family in the process and God used Abraham to impact history. And Abraham is what is considered the father of the modern day Jewish people. Because the simple decision that he made, God, I'm going to follow you. There was a lot of weight in that decision, but the decision was, I'm just going to be obedient. Nehemiah, we took a look at him, who was an Israelite. He was a refugee living under Persian rule, had probably never, ever been to Jerusalem. His job is the cup bearer to the king. He has to taste the wine and the food and make sure there's no poison in it before the king eats it. Hears of the destruction of his city, Jerusalem, his, his heritage, makes a simple decision that he's going to go and try to rebuild the city. Again, a lot of weight behind it, but just I'm going to go and attempt to rebuild the city. And through that decision, God used Nehemiah not just to rebuild walls, but to preserve his people, which preserved the lineage through which Jesus would come through and be the savior of all humanity. I don't think Abraham or Nehemiah ever, 
ever thought that God would take a simple decision in their ordinary lives and use it to impact history in the way that it did. But I believe that we all have a fundamental need on the inside of us to know that what we're doing today and the lives that we live, that they mean something and they will mean something beyond the grave, right? We want to know that we're part of something bigger than ourselves, that we're more than just a product of biology, that we're more than just we're going to go into the ground and become part of the ground again, that what I'm doing today will impact my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. And in fact, the highest need that we have is a guy named Abraham Maslow. Anybody ever heard of him? Hierarchy of needs, you need food and shelter, and then it goes up. The highest need is the need of transcendence to know that what I'm doing today is outliving me and having an impact. And here's what I believe. I believe that God is in the ordinariness, if that's even a word, I don't think it is, is in the ordinariness of our lives. God is responsible for the extraordinary. God is responsible for doing the things that are beyond our ability to understand and and, and beyond our capacity. That is God. But if we'll embrace the ordinary, if we'll embrace the small things that he gives us, and we'll do them with excellence, and we'll do them with passion, and we'll do the small things as if we were doing the big things, God will give us more to do. God sees the small things in your life. God sees the things that you're doing that you think are insignificant, but they are significant to him because he is watching not to, not to just you know, test you and, 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 and discipline you, but he's watching it. Can they do this with the same passion they would do this big thing over here? They can. I'm going to give them more, and I'm going to give them more, and he prepares us, and he steps us into more responsibility and doing more. But if we neglect the small and say it's insignificant, we'll have to fight to get what we think is significant. And if we have to fight to get it, we're going to have to fight to keep it. And that's exhausting. You want to do something, I believe you want to do things that are great. You want to, want to do something big and your big may be different than your big. But if you just want to do more, what is it that God has right in front of you today that is, seems small? That seems like nobody is watching. That seems like nobody even cares. And like I told first service, this was not part of my message in any way, shape, and form. It just kind of came out for a service. And I just think it's important for, for us to understand how much God appreciates and sees the small things that we do. And that's where I think the extraordinary results begin is when we embrace the ordinary. I learned this lesson when I was working for Joyce Meyer Ministries. And granted, I'm only 31, so I'm still learning this lesson. But I came out of college with a degree in Spanish. And, you know, I just thought I was hot stuff. I had a degree. And the only thing I got when I graduated was no job and a bill in the mail. Okay? And so saying, you got to pay for this degree now. And so I, I, I go get a job and get hired at Joyce Meyer Ministries. I'm going to be on the phones in, in English and in Spanish. And I get there and I'm answering phone calls eight hours a day, five days a week. Anybody ever done that? Sit in a cubicle and just answer phone calls. Thank you for calling Joyce Meyer Ministries. My name is Josh. How can I help you? Thank you for calling Joyce Meyer Ministries. My name is Josh. I mean, it's the same thing. Hard work. Like not physically hard, but just the same thing over and over again. And I learned so much sitting at that desk. I thought, man, I got, got, I got a degree. I speak Spanish, right? I'm 23 years old. I can do more than answer phones. But I answered phones, year after year, answered these phones. And they had a travel team there, and, and uh, I thought that would be it, man. If I, could, if I could just get on the travel team, then everybody would know who I am. I'd get close to Joyce Meyer Ministry. I'll be out there, thousands of people, you know, in a venue, and it'll be this, the most awesome thing in the world. So I answered these phone calls, and, and I didn't get on the travel team for like six years. Right, six years, I finally got my opportunity, right? 
asked to join. So I joined. I get part of this team. And uh, we, we train the volunteers, and we take care of reserve seating, and we do the offering, and then we deal with, like, problem people. We deal with the public, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And so I get my second conference. I go out to San Jose, California. We're in the arena where the San Jose Sharks play hockey. And I'm there, and the guy who is my boss says, all right, Josh, here's what we're going to do today. Here's what, and it's, nobody's in the arena yet, right? We're there early. He says, all right, you're going to vacuum the carpet. They got, they got carpet in front of the stage. And, you gotta, and now you're just not going to vacuum it. And it's, it's curved. You've got to vacuum it in straight lines. Straight lines. So people are going to come here in a half hour. And it's like it's going to look horrible. You said, vacuum it in straight lines. So, okay. Vacuum that carpet. Now, Josh, I want you to vacuum the stage. I'm like, oh, right. I'm going to be on the stage, right? Vacuum the stage. Okay. Vacuum the stage. Black carpet. You gotta vac- Why do we got to vacuum it? Because the cameras are high definition and there's all kinds of junk when they roll it out from the truck. So I'm up there and I'm vacuuming this stage. And nobody's in the arena. Right? Nobody sees this. Vacuuming the stage. I'm thinking, man, I got on the road and I got to vacuum this. Nobody sees this. Vacuum this carpet. Straight lines. Straight lines, right? Straight lines, okay? Straight lines. San Jose, California, I'll never forget it. So I'm in there just kind of having this conversation in my head. I felt like the Lord say, yeah, Josh, you, you, you may think nobody sees this, but I see it. And if you can vacuum this carpet with the same kind of excellence and passion you think you would preach on this carpet, There's a lesson for you to be learned here. I see you vacuuming this carpet. I thought, you know, I get on the stage, Matt, Matt, uh, whatever his name is, (laughs) leading worship, I can't even think of his name, Israel Houghton, and all these people that you listen to on the radio, they come and they lead worship, Joyce's going to preach on this stage, nobody, none of them saw that, none of them care, Matt Redman, that's who it is. (laughs) Never once, that guy, yeah. Carpet, hey, I see it, I see it. I learned a lesson. That I, it, was, it was emotional for me. Hey, I'm a vacuum in this carpet. For me, what switched in me that day was, you know what? God cares about vacuuming the carpet. I'm going to care about vacuuming the carpet. And I spent two or three years on the road vacuuming the carpet. I got a chance to go to another conference uh, after I became the pastor here. It was in South Carolina, and I got there. And well, the funny thing is, I was, I was the pastor here, and I walked in, and uh, I the guy that I, you know, I'd worked for for so long, I said, hey, what do you need me to do? He's like, you want to vacuum the carpet? I said, yes, sir. I, I would love to vacuum the carpet. I don't have to be in charge of anything, right? I don't have to make any decisions. I ain't got to do nothing. I will vacuum the carpet. Yes, sir. That's all I want to do. But it, it hit me again. I, I got to, in October of 2014, I went to Albany. I just, that was one of the last conferences I did, Albany, New York. Went to Albany, and after the, the conference was over, we were down in the bowels of the venue. And if you've ever been to an arena, it's like, it's great in the inside, but just the underbelly of the arenas, they're just, they're not exciting at all. And we're back there and I'm helping clean up the, the green room, which is where Joyce Meyer would go and just get her coffee or whatever before she would speak. And I'm cleaning up the bathroom. And I'm sitting there just feeling sorry for myself. And I said, in my mind is what I'm saying. But you know what? Nobody sees this. I said, I bet you Joyce Meyer doesn't even know who I am. And she doesn't, just so you know right? Still doesn't. Know who I am. You know, cleaning the bathroom and stuff. And I said, the moment I said, nobody sees this, nobody knows that I'm doing this, I felt the Lord again just speak to my heart. But I do. But I do. Just that reminder. He sees it. You want to live beyond ordinary? You want to do great things for God? Vacuum the carpets that he gives you. Clean the toilets that he gives you. Embrace the small thing you're doing right now. And do it with the same kind of passion and, and with worship to him. And I guarantee you, God sees it. And before you'll know it, because I never thought that I would ever be the pastor of this church. Before you know it, you'll be doing something. And you're like, I wish I could go back to cleaning that bathroom and vacuuming that carpet. 
It's the small things. And like I said, this, this was not part of any of the message that, that I was going to share today, and, and I'm still going to talk about it a little bit. It'll, it'll, it'll tie in, but it, it's answering this question. Can I do the small things? Can I embrace the seemingly insignificant aspects of my job? Whether anybody praises me for it, whether anybody acknowledges me for it, whether I ever get a raise for it or not, can I do it and believe that God has me where he has me and what's in front of me is what's in front of me? If I want to get to the next thing, I know I just got to do this, what's right in front of me, embrace it and say, God, I'm going to do it as though I were doing it unto you. I really think that's a key to success nobody wants to talk about. Right? It's just the small things. Today, I just want to take a look at, at a guy named Peter in the Bible and look at Matthew chapter 14, just a, an incident in the life of Peter in the Gospels. This, this incident appears in Matthew, uh, Mark, and John, not in the book of Luke. We're going to pick it up in verse 22, but what's happened before this is the, the disciples and Jesus, they've been together for about two years. Two years. It's been two years since Jesus walked along the shore and called Peter and Andrew and James and John to be his disciples and they left their fishing business and, and followed him and he called the other eight. Two years, they've been doing ministry together. They've been traveling. They've seen Jesus do miracles, all kinds of things. And what they've come uh, against in this particular passage before this is Jesus and the disciples have found out that John the Baptist has been killed. He's been killed by King Herod and King Herod killed him. He beheaded him. He cut his head off. Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. They were close. G- John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus to come. Some of, J- of Jesus' disciples were John the Baptist's disciples, Peter, number one, and Andrew. They, they had followed John the Baptist. And then when Jesus came along, they're like, John, Jesus is the one whom you've been pointing to. We, we're going to go now and follow Jesus. And Jesus is deeply affected by this. The Bible says he goes to try to be by himself. Be by himself. He just wants to process this and and pray. And so him and his disciples, they go to, to this place to get away and people find out where they're going to go. And so they rush to be there. It says there's 5,000 men. So there's at least, you know, at least women and children. There's probably conservatively 15 to 20,000 people sitting there waiting for Jesus because they found out where he was going. And so he ministers to them, he preaches, and then they're hungry. And so this is the story where Jesus is like, we got to feed these people. And they said, what do you've got? And he said, we got five loaves and two fish, right? Jesus says, bring it here. And so he prays over it and then it's multiplied and they feed everybody there and they have 12 basketfuls left over and it's just an amazing thing but by the time all this is over they're, they're exhausted Jesus and the disciples I believe are physically exhausted emotionally exhausted and even spiritually exhausted and Jesus says hey I'm gonna go and pray by myself but you guys what I need you to do is I need you to go to the next stop on our journey I need you to go John tells us to go to Capernaum so he, he sends them away, and it's about midnight, exhausted the tide. He sends them to the other side, and he goes to pray. That's where we pick up this story. It says, immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray, and night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen. And they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. And in their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once and said, don't be afraid. Take courage for I am here. Then Peter called to him and said, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And Jesus said, yes, come. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. 
But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink and said, Save me, Lord. And Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him and said, You have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. The disciples worshipped him and said, You really are the Son of God. And Jesus sends them to the to this place, sends them to the other side of where they're going. John tells us they're going to Capernaum. They're at the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is located in northern Israel. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were from Galilee. They grew up fishing on that, that particular sea. Uh, they spent a lot of time there. They were actually, some believe, business partners in their fishing business, of which they completely left uh, to follow Jesus. Sea of Galilee is also known in the New Testament as the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake of Gennesaret. It's about 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, 84 to 141 feet deep at any given point, and it's fed by the Jordan River. It's a big body of water, and they have to get to the other side. It's about midnight. So let's just say they have to go approximately 8 miles if they're going from you know, the one side to the other. John says that they get about uh, three or four miles out into their journey when uh, the storms rise up and the waves begin to get heavy. Jesus is off praying by himself. Twelve guys are piled into a Galilean fishing boat. It's possible it's you know, either Peter, James, John, or Andrew's boat or one very similar. Twelve guys in a boat, 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, not very deep to accommodate fishing. These dudes are packed in here. And the storm rises up. There's not land in sight. They're four miles out into the Sea of Galilee. And I, and I look, went online, and you can actually look at time-lapse camera of what a storm looks like coming over the Sea of Galilee. The waves do get choppy. The rain comes in. The fog comes in. It's hard to see. They're losing their bearings. They're fighting these waves. I assume that, that uh, the other eight who, didn't, who weren't fishermen, who probably didn't grow up on the Sea of Galilee, are looking to James, John, Peter, and Andrew. What do we do now? And they're fighting these waves, trying to get across. And all of a sudden, at 3 o'clock in the morning, they see what is a, a figure coming towards them. Obviously, you and I know it's Jesus, and we kind of just accept the fact, yeah, Jesus walked on water, but that's not normal, right? People walking on water is not normal. I've never seen anybody walked on water, walking on water. As a kid, learning this story, I thought it'd be cool to try, so I tried it in the bathtub, and it uh, didn't work. Anybody else ever tried it in a pool or something? Come on. You had, yeah, yeah, you didn't want to raise your hand. Right here, right here, yeah. I tried to walk on water, it didn't work. Yeah, didn't work. They see a figure that they can't make out walking on the water. I guarantee you they had never seen anything like this at any given point in time in their life, especially Peter, James, John, and Andrew grew up on the Sea of Galilee, never seen anything. Their first response, which would be my first response, gotta be a ghost, right? An apparition, it's a ghost. Jesus not only hears them say that because it said they cried out, they screamed. It's a ghost. Jesus says, no. He says, hey, don't worry, it's me. It's me. Take courage, I'm here. Doesn't say, hey, it's Jesus, it's me. So they, they're listening, they recognized his voice. It's me, don't worry, I'm, I'm here. Three in the morning, Jesus walk, walking on the water. Bible says this, then Peter said, of course then Peter said, right? Peter is always saying stuff. He's all, he just, Peter said, yep, right, I understand Peter. Then Peter said, that's, who, who is Peter, right? Well, we know that Peter is a disciple, right? We know that he was a fisherman. We established that. He, he left uh, everything to follow Jesus. We know that he's married. The Bible says that, talks about his wife in the book of John. He's married. He, he's the oldest disciple of maybe 25 to 30. 
Oldest disciple. You know, you see renderings of the disciples. They've got like gray hair and it's all, they look like, you know, big burly men. No, they were teenagers, right? These were not old guys. These were teenagers. You couldn't get, I don't think Jesus could have got a bunch of old guys to come and follow him and leave everything. It's like, kind of like the military. Why do they like young ones? Because they will do whatever he asks them to do. These are teenage young men. Peter's the oldest. He was a fisherman. Fishermen in those days, I, I was reading a, some historical commentary. I said that fishermen in those days were gruff, unkempt. Their language was salty. They were full of vigor. They were boisterous and they had hot tempers. And that was Peter. He was opinionated. Whatever Peter thought, boom, came out of his mouth. Even before he thought it, he just said it. He was impulsive. He just did stuff. He, and I think he was courageous and he was bold. In fact, he was the leader of the disciples. And when, when the Bible talks about the disciples and it lists them, Peter's always at the top. Peter, he led them. As impulsive as he was, there was something about him that if he thought it was right, he was going to say it and he was going to do it and he was going to deal with the consequences later. Right? He, he did crazy stuff. He told Jesus what he was going to do and what he was not going to do at one point. Jesus, you're not going to do that. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. I am going to do that. He cut off a Roman soldier's ear in front of an entire legion of soldiers because that soldier was going to apprehend Jesus. Peter's probably most well-known, unfortunately, for his denial of Jesus, right? But Peter would go on to preach arguably the greatest sermon in the New Testament, the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people came to know who Jesus was. He became a pillar in the New Testament church. He was an apostle. He wrote two books that would make their way into the New Testament, First and Second Peter. And then Peter ended up dying, not in comfort, not in ease, not sitting back reflecting on everything, but he was crucified by the Roman Empire along with his wife. Why? Because he followed Jesus. Peter said when they went to crucify him, you need to crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. That's who Peter is. A seemingly ordinary, rough, uneducated fisherman from Galilee who ends up leading the disciples, preaching the greatest sermon and giving, following Jesus to the point of his unfortunate death. But he's, that's who he is. But he, he's, he's an ordinary dude. He, he's not unlike a lot of us that are in here today didn't have these supernatural qualities that God said, yeah, I can use him because of this. No, he just, he was, he was just ready to go. And when you understand Peter, it makes his decision to speak out to Jesus a little more understandable, but it's still not logical. And it's still not something that I would do. Peter says, hey, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat and walk on the water. If I'm Peter, hey, Jesus, if it's you, keep coming. If it's you, Jesus, give me a thumbs up and get in the boat and we'll get to Capernaum. No, not Peter. Jesus, if it's you, call me to jump out of the boat. He's a fisherman. He knows what's underneath. He's been on this sea many times. Why in the world would Peter ask Jesus to get him out of the boat and walk on the water? My analytical, logical brain would have kicked in at that moment and said, don't say that, Josh. Don't do that. Why, why, why would Peter want to leave the boat, the, the, the sense of comfort and security, right, and dependability, the only thing keeping him from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee? Well, we could dig into that. We could say it's because Peter's impulsive. He doesn't think. He's, he's courageous. Yeah, he is all those things. I don't necessarily have too many problems with Peter's question. The question in, that I have is, is why would Jesus tell him to do it? 
if Peter's not going to think, at least Jesus will. Right? Won't Jesus, who being all wise and all knowing, say, Peter, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the fact that you want to come to me on the water and stuff, but stay in the boat. Let me get to the boat, because when I get to the boat, then the storm will stop and it'll all be good. But no, Peter says, come. Or Jesus says to Peter, yeah, come. I don't know if Peter expected it. Apparently did, because he hopped over the side of the boat into the water. And we could talk about the sermon in the beginning. You know, we just all got to walk on the water for Jesus. But again, bathtub didn't work. So, you know, not going to tell you to go walk on the water. Not going to tell you how, how do we walk on the water. But the question, why, why would Jesus instruct somebody to leave a place of security and comfort, protection and dependability? Why would he call him out of that to himself? Why? He didn't, he didn't instigate it. Peter instigated it. Why would Jesus agree to it? That's the question that I have. And it runs counterintuitive to everything that I think and everything that I know and everything that I want for my life. In fact, it runs counterintuitive to my self-preservation mechanism. Why would a God that I serve, a Jesus that I follow, call me away from those things? I think the reason it runs counter is because there's a part of me, maybe a part of you, that really wants to believe or does believe that God's ultimate plan for my life, ultimate destination for me is comfort and ease. That following Jesus is the safest bet around, right? Jesus will always lead me, lead me in a journey that is safe, that is comfortable, that is secure. He'll never ask me to risk. He'll never ask me to step out and go through something difficult. No, no, no. He's going to make sure I'm comfortable. He's going to make sure I'm secure. But I don't think that's right. I don't think that following Jesus is always the safest bet, according to our analytical, logical minds. I don't believe that God's ultimate plan and destination for you and me is safety and comfort. Got one. <laughs> I didn't expect any. I just, and it's tough for me. I think we've preached a, a, a theology in America that's just this, this thing, God, yeah, God is good, and God wants everything good for you, and I, and I believe that he does, but if, it, if you have to be uh, inconvenienced or it has to make you uncomfortable, if it ain't easy, and if it's uncomfortable, then it ain't God. But Jesus calls Peter away from that. He doesn't tell Peter to stay safe. He doesn't tell Peter to get back in the boat. He says, come, come walk on the water. I feel like the question to ask today, only you can answer it, I can't answer it, I can only answer it for me, is what is, what is the boat that you have in your life? What is the, 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 the symbol of security and dependability and protection and safety that you're hanging on to that's really keeping you from following Jesus and pursuing him? What are you holding on to that is, uh, that is promising you, if I just stay here, I'll be safe. If I'll just stay here, I'll be secure. If I just stay here, it'll be dependable. And it's not allowing you to branch out and do the things that you really feel like God has on the inside of you. What is that thing that is keeping you from really taking that step of faith and following Jesus into the unknown? It could be a job, it could be a relationship, it could be many of things that in themselves are not inherently bad, but are keeping me from really following a God, serving a God and following a Jesus that's saying, come, come out to me, come out into the water. Leave that thing behind. That thing is not bad. That thing is not evil, but it's keeping you from really stepping into what I have for you. 
that maybe, just maybe, the American dream is not God's dream. I know that's hard because we've done something in this country that I think is unfortunate. We have woven the American dream into the Bible, and so now we can't even tell the difference. We've woven, we've, we've written our culture into the Bible rather than allowing the Bible to influence our culture. And we see it through this interesting lens. God is good, don't get me wrong. God provides for every single need, I believe that. But there's just those times where he calls us away from the boat. He calls us out of the very thing that we want to hold on to so tight because it's keeping us safe or secure or whatever the case may be. He's pulling us and he's saying, can you trust me? Will you keep your eyes on me? Because Peter, he gets out of that boat, right? And he's walking and he's good. And then his, his mind catches up with him. And he looks around, storm, sea, takes his eyes off Jesus. He begins to sink. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, Lord, save me. I think if Peter was still holding on to the boat, he would have said, come on, Jesus, change my mind. I'm going to hang on to this boat. He, he, he can't grab the boat anymore. The only thing he can reach for is Jesus. He recognizes his weakness. He recognizes his inability to do it on himself. And he recognizes his dependability on Jesus, his dependence on Jesus. And Jesus immediately, without question, reaches down, grabs Peter and says, Peter, you have so little faith. I'd be like, what? Little faith? I got out of the boat, Jesus. I walked on water, Jesus. Little faith. He said, Jesus, why did you doubt me? We don't get Peter's response. It's not a rebuke as much as it is just Jesus saying, hey, if you just kept your eyes on me. And they walk back to the boat on the water together. And they get in the boat. And the only thing the disciples can say is this, truly, you are the son of God. And they worship him, which I think is amazing. They worship Jesus because he walked on water. I mean, they've seen Jesus do miracles, right? Raise the dead. They just saw him take five loaves and two fish and multiply it. But you walked on water, you gotta be the son of God. Just worship. That sense of awe, you see that throughout the gospels, right? Man, they're just, wow, Jesus. Whoa, I thought this, but then you did this, whoa. How many of you in here today would be honest, you have to raise your hand, just think about it. You've lost your sense of wonder. You lost your sense of awe of who God is and who Jesus is. You forget that when you come in here that there is cause and there is reason to worship the God of the universe regardless of what's going on in your life because he gave us the very best of heaven in Jesus. I think if you want that wonder and that for God to restore that sense of awe and amazement, you gotta get out of the boat. You gotta leave, you gotta realize that what you're putting your faith and your trust and your hope in, while it's not bad, it is taking the place of God in your life. Because the other question that I had is, why would Peter detach himself from that boat? Why was Peter so willing to jump out of that boat into the water and go to Jesus? You could say it was because of his impulsivity. You could say it because he was rough. You could say it because of a lot of things. And I think that all fed into it. But I think the reason there was is there was just something about Jesus. There was something about Jesus that he would leave his business for, spend time away from his family, walk away from following John the Baptist, that he didn't question when I jump into this water that Jesus won't be there. What was it about Jesus? There had to be something about Jesus that caused Peter to do that. And it wasn't feeding the 5,000 and it wasn't just the miracles. It was something that Jesus did for Peter. I think part of it is this, is that when, when Jesus met Peter, his name wasn't Peter, his name was Simon. 
And the moment that Jesus met Simon, he said, you are now Peter, which means rock. You are solid. From the moment that Peter met Jesus, Jesus renamed him and said, you are a rock. Peter wasn't a rock at that point. Peter was Peter. He was Simon. But Jesus began to say, this is who you are. This is who I've made you to be. Jesus comes along, he gives Peter his purpose, he gives Peter his identity. Peter finds in Jesus what I think he's been looking for all of his life, meaning and purpose, and truly this is the Son of God, and it was on, from on that rock. Jesus said, upon that rock, I'll build my church. It wasn't Peter's character, it was who God had made Peter to be. And That's how Peter refers to himself the rest of his life. He's not Simon, he's Peter. My question to you today is this. Is the God that you serve and the Jesus that you follow worth getting out of the boat for? Because if he's not, he's not the God of scripture. It's not the Jesus that got on the cross and did what he did for you and me. If the God we serve and the Jesus that we follow isn't worth getting out of the boat for, it's a God that we've created or allowed someone else to create for us. Because if the God that we serve and the Jesus that we follow is only concerned with our comfort and ease, well, we can take care of that ourselves. And that ain't worth getting out of the boat for. If God is relegated to a cosmic vending machine where we just get whatever we want, that ain't worth getting out of the boat for. But if the God that we serve and the Jesus that we follow came not just to make bad people good, but came to make dead people live, came that we may have a relationship with the God of the universe not on the basis of what we do, not on the basis of how good we are or anything that we could do for him simply because he created us and he has a plan for our lives. If that's the God we serve, if that's the Jesus that we follow, then we can get out of the boat for that. But we have to answer that question. Is the God that you serve, the Jesus that you follow, worth getting out of the boat for? For Peter, it was. For me, at times. So how in the world does this fit in with the beginning of your message and, and the small things? I just think that if the God you serve and the Jesus you follow isn't worth getting out of the boat for, it doesn't matter what the small things are because the God of the universe doesn't take notice, so why would I do the small things? But if he is, if the God of the universe and the Savior of all mankind is worth getting out of the boat for, then the small things have meaning. And the small things have purpose because I have meaning and I have purpose. And God sees it and God's aware of it. Some of you could say, Josh, I've heard this message before. If you want to walk on water, you've got to get out of the boat. It's old hat. I get it. But we're still in the boat. We're still holding on to it. My, my, my encouragement to you today is this. I, I'm not asking you to jump out of the boat and just charge hell with a water pistol, Okay? I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you just to do a couple things. Number one, what is my boat? Identify it. What, what am I holding on to? Lord, I, I don't know. Uh, I do know. Or just help me identify. What, what, what am I latching on to? Security, dependence, protection, safety. What, what am I latching on to? Help me recognize it. Number two, then just make a decision that you're going to take a step to get out of the boat. Maybe today you could just kind of hike your leg over the side. Test out the water. See if it's cold or not, right? Just say, I'm, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to take one step towards Jesus. And maybe while you're, you're, you're deciding if you're going to do that, you can cry out and say, Jesus, if it's really you. I like Peter. He wanted to know. 
If it's really you, Jesus, tell me to come. Before you jump out of that boat and you take that step, maybe just, God, if it's really you, help me. Just take, see what I said. Help you move from where you are to where God wants you to be. Take one step towards that. Just one step. Maybe that step is, what is my boat? Okay, you know it is, what it is. Help me, Lord, to take a step out of the boat. Help me to take a step on the water. And then you get out on the water, whatever your proverbial water is. You will realize your inability to do it on your own and your dependency on Jesus. And I really think that's the safest place you could ever be. That's the best place that you could ever be because you're depending on him. And just like we read about that scripture today that Miss Charlene brought up to me, not planned, I didn't know anything about it. And all these things shall be added unto you. But what? When you seek first him. Seek first him. I don't know what your boat is. I don't know what your first step is. We've got some steps here that you can take to, to finding out and discovering what your purpose is. Maybe for you it's joining a small group. It's just getting around in relationships and, and meeting new people and growing in your faith and, and, and just formulating relationships that will bless you beyond. It's taking that step of faith and saying, I, just, I don't know, I don't like meeting new people or whatever. Maybe just take a step. I'm going to join. I'm going to check them out. Maybe you say, I don't really know what my purpose is and stuff. And, and go to next steps. Every, it's on Sundays, uh, right after the second service, you can go. Just, I'm asking you for four hours, over, four hours over four weeks. One hour a week for four weeks. Find out a little bit about us. Meet the staff. Take, you're going to take an opportunity to learn about you, what's your personality, what are some gifts God's given you, how that could fit here, how that could fit outside of here. And you could take a step. Man, I'll join a small group. I'll lead a small group. I'll serve in some capacity. Do something small. These steps are designed not just to benefit faith community, but to benefit you. I think we discover by doing, not just by sitting and waiting. Peter didn't realize how dependent on Jesus he was until he got out of the boat. Just take a step. That's all I'm saying. Take a step. What's your step today? Is the God that you serve and the Jesus that you follow worth getting out of the boat for? Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to pray for all of you. Here in a moment... When I'm done praying, our prayer teams are going to come forward and we'd love to pray with you at the end of the service regarding any need. But if you could bow your heads this morning, I just want to ask a couple questions. Number one, if you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I know what my next step is. My next step is I've never given my life to Jesus or maybe I have, but I've, I've gone the other way. I've got, I'm not living the way that I should. I know I need to get right with God. I need to experience that salvation and forgiveness of Jesus. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I need to get my life straight, begin fresh. I'd ask you, would you raise your hand? I'd love to pray with you. Is there anybody in here to say, get my life straight with Jesus? Okay. Secondly, if you're here today, I just want to ask you to be honest and say this. You know what? I'm not really sure the God that I follow, the God that I serve and the Jesus I follow is worth getting out of the boat for. And I need help with that. Not guilt, not anything. Just, I need help. Would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand, acknowledge it. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have today. We could come here, we could learn about you, we could, we could spend time in your presence, worship you, but Father, more so, we could, we could discover that you have created us with a purpose and a plan. And Lord, I pray for anybody in here today that says, you know what, I'm just going to be honest. God that I serve, Jesus I follow, is just, 
It's not worth getting out of the boat for right now. Lord, I pray you, Holy Spirit, you would reveal to them as you do the person of Jesus Christ and how sufficient and how great and how awesome and how loving and gracious you are, that you are worth getting out of the boat for. Help us all this week, Lord, to take one step. Help us to move, God, from where we're at today, one step closer to where you want us to be. And we thank you, Lord, that as we leave here this morning, we go into our weeks, kids in school, heading back to work. Father, I pray we do it with purpose and meaning. May we see how faithful you are in your provision. Lord, you, you provide every single one of our needs according to your riches and glory, which are in Christ Jesus. May you make your face to shine upon us. Show us your mercy. Give us your grace and bring us back safe next week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. 